0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
2: Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. Coming to you from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, and Business Radio Studios. Looking out onto Locust Walk on a crisp, gorgeous, still December morning here, smack in the middle of finals with students either stressed out or super happy this morning. One of the two. Campus slowly emptying out. Christmas coming on. Cade Massey hosting this morning with, get this, the whole crew. All four Wharton Moneyball collaborators. None of us are teaching today. All of us are here for the two hours. Well,
0: it's finals time. Our jobs are done. And that's right. Well,
2: except for ah, that, not really. that nasty grading thing yeah. that's going to have to happen between now and Christmas. We're going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning for these two hours, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. You guys can be here. You can listen passively in the comfort of your home or car, or you can give us a ring. Give us a shout. The number, one 844 That's one 844 942 7866 we you know we we, want, we don't let te- we don't let students sit in class without speaking accepting knowledge passively they're supposed to engage
0: yeah right? no and i mean we're we're kind of per- perpetuating the active learning environment here on the show yeah, yeah. by so, having people so speak up you want the socratic part- method really
2: yeah participation grade man yeah. you got to speak up that's right give us a shout or get us an email businessradio at siriusxm.com businessradio at siriusxm.com or hit us up on twitter at wmoneyball at wmoneyball if you want your participation grade before the end of the year this is the last chance this is the last chance you gotta speak up at wmoneyball that's our handle on twitter this is the last show of 2019 which means it's the last show of the teens it's the last show of the decade
0: I know It's
2: quite a thing this was our we on a high note I well, feel we, it we were born in this decade, we were created in this decade, and this is going to wrap it up, so yeah. it's going to be, who knows what's going to happen, who knows. Adi Wider, good morning to you. Uh, yeah, it's good to be here. Eric Bradlow, good morning to you. Good morning. And my kibbutz yeah, over it, here. It was Shane
3: actually a, a, one of our listeners, speaking of participation, who sent me down a, a small rabbit hole this week yeah. of data. They asked me the question about home field advantage in basketball. I remember last week, uh, Eric, we talked about home field advantage and, and I said it's real in basketball it's actually I think the biggest advantage of any of the sports can
2: I just say Adi, you are very sendable down rabbit holes that's that's one of your redeeming qualities Yeah,
3: <laughs> you're I, up for I'm a, a rabbit hole he's for... a deep intellectual he's always wanted to go down kind a of bit. rabbit hole yeah. a, a, like Alice I, actually just, I just like data and, and collecting new data and, and using these opportunities to learn new things about so sports wait, I don't know much about
0: I guess I, I'm, uh, when 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 you say basketball's got the biggest home field advantage you mean the like, kind of home away splits are Split. the it's, most it's dramatic yeah. in basketball. Yeah, so, so we, we, that's like it's it's an empirical statement about based on wins and losses, not yeah. like me- some kind of mechanism for yeah, happening. No, yeah, yeah, just purely
3: on on the yeah. differential. You can see it. It's crazy. I mean, Sixers haven't lost yet in uh, at home and the Celtics lost their first game at home against the Sixers this last week. Basketball is very lopsided in this way. And and so the question was what's the actual translation? What does it come down to in terms of points, in terms of percentage, in terms of games? So I came up the question was asked in terms of winning percentage at the end of the season. So Essentially, a fifty a five hundred team is equivalent to about a fifty nine percent or sixty percent team six hundred team at at, at home at, at home, and it turns out to be about three points. That that was the thing that was actually interesting to me. It's only three points because the advantage in football is about two and a half three points, right? And it's but smaller in a percentage. Are, but their scales, the scales are, are different. different. But you'd think that three points out of a forty point game, like a football game, has got to be. More important than three points out of a two hundred point game, and it turns out it's they're the same. Well, it's not that every, that's yeah.
0: I mean, every basketball game comes down to those About, like three exactly, or five points. Exactly, absolutely, end, yeah, right. You don't have this I mean, massive the two to previous
2: one hundred uh,
3: and twenty points or whatever, and also well, consequences. Didn't,
2: didn't you find? Didn't you find
3: that it changed over time? Well yeah. So that was actually a very interesting. Um, that it absolutely has changed over time, and that in the eighties, eighty eight in particular, it was the biggest ever. Eighty eight. Eighty eight. You don't believe in these one year spike things? Oh uh, well, nothing's... I mean, it had been trending downward. Um, um, and then it, it bottoms it out. It's, it's, it's always 88? got a bot. There's nothing about eighty eight that I right. think is particular, but right. uh, any sequence I mean, of you, numbers you, has you, to have a bottom. It was your graduation year. It was my graduation yeah. year from college. Eighty eight, eighty nine, and then what is interesting is that it turned around rapidly, and by ninety seven, it was essentially where it is now, and it hasn't stayed. And so the question that was posed was why? Nine, what happened in eighty eight, eighty nine that 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 started the shift towards uh, essentially a massive decrease in the in the advantage. To it, what it is okay, now? So
2: you, you just said the decrease. What that at its peak was, was what six
3: six points. Okay, so it's a, it's been halved, halved in the last yeah And that's, years. And, and six, six points is sixty eight percent. The home mm, right. teams won sixty eight percent of the time okay. in nineteen eighty eight, and now it's down to about fifty nine. So the question is why? And I don't a bunch of the listeners tossed out reasons. Refs going from three to two. The refs are obviously matter. Mm. I don't know when that happened. I didn't know when it happened. two to three two to, two to going from two to three. So better better refereeing, less advantageous, advan, advantage there. And then one of my friends actually pointed out uh, who had seen the tweet that he thought that might have to do with time and sleep and that rest is an important part. In fact, when we had Jeremy Lin on the program, he said, that's it. And I, I pulled out this tweet of, uh, uh, not tweet, it was an interview with Charles Barkley who was complaining about, talking about today's contemporary players are a bunch of comp- whiners and that they don't know how to suck it up. And back when I first came in the field, I lay on the floor of airports waiting for commercial flights to take an
2: off. Old man rant. An old and man yeah, old man no, rant. But he pointed that. out
3: that in 1988, the Detroit Pistons won the championship And then from the and then and they switched to to private private jets and then by within five years all the teams were doing it Mm. and that's exactly when the home field advantage, just uh, essentially halved itself. Wow, Wow.
2: and and that's enough. Change in their experience going to chartered planes is enough change in their experience, you think, to improve. I and mean, Barkley was saying, Well, well think about our Barclay experience complaint-
3: on, on, on uh, you know, late night flights, they're horrifying. So, a char- a chartered plane is much more relaxing.
2: So, Barkley's rant yeah. included, like, we're sitting in the you know, waiting area at two o'clock in the morning after a game, mm-hmm. that kind of thing.
3: If, if
0: Barkley's correct, I mean, one way you could try and get at that as a mechanism is look at, you know, is the home field advantage. Uh, more dramatic, or a home field split more dramatic for teams that have to travel more. Like the Seattles and Portlands of the world, as right. opposed to well, the that's one thing. New York teams. The other thing, of course, is what I described, which is, this is the good news. All teams
4: didn't move to private planes at once right away, yeah. so you have that source of variation the data so that's a great source of variation assuming it, it wasn't endogenously chosen like oh my god
0: we're losing so many road games well, let's is, switch this or, is, or it or is we're a really good team and we can we're, the, you know the, the really good teams to, are the ones that right. are like going to get the jets for i mean i doubt it is uncorrelated I, it's not but a random it, it was it's probably not a randomized implementation well in, and
2: also you, i mean you're long distance Idea would be confounded by that. Yes, it's, like no, it's very not a, much quite so. the equilibrium answer. Mm-hmm. The Seattle's yeah. of the world should be the first to but go it's to interesting. Yeah. It's
4: interesting, out that you pointed that out because um, I just did the it's an analysis. I just looked at this. Of the top 15 teams in the NBA, the Sixers are the only team. With a losing road record, I, I've said it a couple times. This is a flawed team. I'm very concerned, despite their twenty and eight and second in the East. They're the only of the top fifteen NBA teams. Top half. I didn't. I didn't randomly. Top half NBA teams. They're the only one with a losing road record. So, why do you think that
3: is? Yeah. It's a good question. Do you think it's the, I mean, because can I, I...
0: Can I just also give you the perspective, like, from, from when our show is birthed, as since we discussed that already, <laughs> if you'd gotten to the, like, you know, looking back to what you said about the Sixers, like, three, four years ago, we've finally gotten to the point where at least you're just concerned about their performance on the road. The That's, Sixers are true. an
3: incredibly good team compared to where we were. They're undefeated at home, right? They are. Undefeated,
0: they're the only 14-0. Yeah. Okay.
3: And 6-8 and, and on the and road. And they did beat the Celtics at, 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 in Boston, so... That's something. I don't know. what you make of it. us Then why they got blown have... out
4: by 20 by yes, the Nets. Yes,
3: they did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: so in, in college football, the, what they've found is that the teams with the biggest road home splits are typically teams in odd locations, like Texas Tech. So it's a little bit difficult to get there. Maybe it's a different environment. But it's, it's like idiosyncrasy of the – The of traveling the...
3: team has yeah. to suffer. No.
2: And that clearly is not going to be the case for NBA teams, basically. No yeah. one's in, like, Anchorage. So why, what would the plausible mechanisms be?
4: Well, a couple could be. We'd have to look. So I know a couple of the games, probably at least four or five of the games, the Sixers on the road have not had their full roster. So they tend to play, I don't call them questionable injured players, more so at home than they do on the road. So I know if you look at just the outcomes, it just a simple explanation is it's not the same team, and I don't mean psychologically. I mean it's not the same team. Like
0: they they're, have a richer bench when they're at they home. They have a richer bench when they're at and home. Is
2: that is that that is a thoughtful? That's a that's
0: is a well it load management. Out, yeah, some kind it's, of. Or it's, has it just been coincidence so it, far this season? Yep.
4: I don't know because yeah. actually the Sixers have not done the only two players they've done load management with are Joel Embiid, yep, and Al Horford. Who's you know, Not that he has a history of injury, but he's a 33-year-old mm-hmm. yeah. center in the NBA. So there have been more road games... Where either Embiid or Horford or both haven't played,
2: but is that, do they get extra benefits from the rest if you don't send them on the road? Maybe this I is would think like that is, would be that another I think, possibility. I think, I think the Sixers are thinking about the playoffs. Yeah, I already. Think, I think they're just being one step ahead of load management. They're just doing it smarter mm-hmm. to make your, look. It's one possible. No, story. but
0: no, no. That and, I, I, and if you were to do load management, it, it, you might as when, you, you as would, would want to do that as buck. efficiently yeah. as possible because there's going to be so you know don't there's going to be fly. blowback. There's going to be all kinds of. stuff. one of the
3: downsides of load management. Is pissing off your fans when Joel Embiid right. doesn't play, Uh-oh. but want it you want and you want, yeah, you know, on the road. Joel Embiid <laughs> should play fans. at home if do yeah. you management.
2: Know. That's a that's that's not the reason we want them from a performance perspective to make these choices. But, but
4: they will get to a point, reasonable. though. I mean, they'll get to a point in the season. Maybe we're already at that point where the disparity between their home and road record is so large. We're going to have to start searching for some explanation for it. In my view, maybe fourteen and zero and six and eight is already there but you know let's say it's 5 6 let's say half the season is over and they're 19 and 1 at home and 8 and 12 on the road at some point we have to say 19 and 1 is very different than 8 oh, and 14 and 0 and, and yeah, where so we I are now. I think we're the already no, there I know but I'm just saying <laughs> I at think we're some already there. point we're going to have to look for something that's more yeah. structural like is it load management is it you know you know they always say is it, we could just look at the numbers do the pl- do the bench this is the old this is the old boy old person answer bench players don't play as well on the road Yeah, they don't
3: shoot as well is that, well. A, is that or, an axiom or, in, in the NFL that okay or no, or aphorism in the NFL? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yes it is young,
2: or young players young, yeah. players, young players don't play the, as well the comfort and the routine of home I mean you talk to these you talk to strength and conditioning people you talk to coaches they're all about routines we mm-hmm. had this conversation with the s and Woman from um, Texas basketball two weeks ago, and she's all about routine, routine, routine. Talked to a college baseball coach recently, routine, routine, routine. These are college folks. Maybe it's even more important for the college age kids. But now we're back to youth. Now we have the, in, the Al, Al Horford conducts himself identically, probably at home and on the road. He's thirty three years old. He's right. a consummate professional. That's different from a nineteen year old kid who was in college the year before and has all the money in the world to and, spend. Yeah, and
0: so let's turn suddenly to college football, where everybody's. At least you can control for age a little bit more. Everybody's kind of in the same age bracket. They're all young. They're all presumably influenced by this kind of playing away versus uh, playing at home. Again, do teams – maybe it's hopelessly confounded – but do teams that have larger travel, college teams, and the variance in that must be gigantic, tend to – be more well, disadvantaged you've, by you've, it. Like said, is the pack? is this part of the reason the Pac twelve does not, you know, is not as well. You know competitive this, as it's, some it's, of the well, other here's, big a you know, here's a stat you know from
4: the NFL for a long time. This is I mean, this has been one of the, if you like, theorems of the NFL for a long time. West Coast teams traveling to the east, playing in a one o'clock game yeah. have a measurably worse performance. <laughs> that's not that's not just a a lore. It's true. Right. It's an actual empirical fact that you know the Seattle Seahawks in a one o'clock game on the East Coast. Now, it could be sleep, could be the distance of the travel.
3: Well, I'll throw in one fact about the the NFL that I know from talking to Eagles staff is that they've recently switched to arriving at their away city the day before, not Early in the week, you think they'd arrive on Wednesday and acclimate. That's not how you do it. They arrive on Saturday.
2: They want to maintain their they want normal to make the normal routine time as long as, long
3: as possible. And then they try to stay on the time. But a, East, a West Coast team going to a, to East Coast team for a one o'clock game, nobody Stuff. plays in the morning, and that's yeah. that's really tough. I was on, on their some of those biological London games,
0: clock. which is a whole other thing. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, whole, that's yeah, a whole. I was hundred.
2: excited a couple weeks ago when the Ravens had to play the Niners, but they got them at one o'clock at home at one o'clock. That's right. And yeah, there you go. That's what you want.
3: But you talk about you know training and routine and and one of the things that that seems to to be rising up the ladder of importance in all these off-field preparations is sleep. It it turns out to be paramount. Not getting sleep is disastrous mm-hmm. for everything, every aspect of your game. Mm-hmm. That that wouldn't apply to academics, right? Well, it, I was just r- about to say, I would. I've
0: been living my late-stage <laughs> career calm like sleep is really important, too. Well, I recognize it. It's, it's actually interesting,
3: but the sleep research does show that you are the least aware of your deficiencies. You yourself are very unaware of, oh, really? of how be- like behind your you are. Like friends and
2: family can assess yeah, you better? other people,
3: yeah, I mean, they have these tests that they do, uh, reactivity, and, and these, they have a wonderful battery of tests they do to see how alert you are and how on, on your game. And you yourself are terrible judge of how you, how you actually are.
2: Okay, but the test can tell us. Yes, the, uh, the test can tell. It's not informant yes. raters can't tell. Like, you guys couldn't judge oh, how yeah, much yeah, sleep Oh, yeah, had. yeah, yeah. But you yourself, you
3: can't do it. You're like, <laughs> so you yeah. you're slurring your words. I am. Yeah, exactly. What? <laughs> by,
2: the, by the way, one of the things that, that teams do... Pro teams do this as well, but it's, it seems especially important for colleges that they they bring the kids don't stay at their apartments the night before the game. They put them in hotels the night right. before the game, even at home, just to try kind of standardize the experience. Mm-hmm. And that you know that policy makes the home away experience less disparate. That may be something. That's probably relatively new. That's probably something that reduced the home field advantage in college football. So by the way, a couple of observations, collecting some details from our conversations. One, this West Coast thing, And – Sixteen years from two thousand three through two thousand eighteen. West Coast teams, guess this guys. Give me the give me your guess. West Coast teams playing on the East Coast, any time slot. This is across time slots. Which which is which is sport NFL. NFL. What straight up, forget the lines. Just what's the win percentage of West Coast teams playing on the East Coast?
4: I'm gonna guess forty percent. I'll go well, even lower. I'll go like all, third.
2: 33, 33%. And this isn't the NBA where the West is always strong and just better
3: than the yeah, East. I just, That's no, no. The, well, I mean, 45 would be the, would be the straight home field disadvantage, approximately. So, and historically, has the West been better than or worse than the East? Let's say no. Let's say No. So you I would say it's probably around forty percent. Okay, two
2: forties and you're lower, Shane. Yeah, thirty three. Okay, so it's thirty seven point six. It's close to forty. Right. I like what Adi, Adi did the smart thing. Please always do the base rates. So thank you for giving us the base rate there. Adi.
0: <laughs> I just did all that in my head, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. I just I didn't talk it out to you guys. I was smart too. Come on now.
2: And by the way, on your on your NBA home field advantage, you said it, it peaked home court advantage. It 88. peaked at eighty eight. And we talked about well, that was the year that the Pistons went to charters and changed the whole travel yeah. thing in the NBA. But also, that is the year that the NBA went from two refs to three.
3: It's so, interesting. So wow. you know, our, total uh, confounding. Wow, it is. So our <laughs> friends who wrote
2: scorecasting, of course, Toby Moskowitz and John Wertheim, they always get credit for their analysis. Said, and Toby's like a serious finance prof. Their analysis was home field advantage is mostly refs, and so they would love that observation right there. So, this is Wharton Moneyball. You guys can jump on here and join us, one wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyball is a good way to reach us. What else, fellas? What else has caught your eye? Well,
4: I spent most of last weekend watching the President's Cup golf, and it was extremely exciting. Was
2: it one of the better weekends of 2019 for you? You're such a Tiger Woods guy. And he's so clutch so in this I'm, tournament. I'm going to say it again. What happened? Well, let me just, well,
4: let me, so let me just say the— <laughs> Fill us in. Well, just so for the <laughs> listeners that don't know the format of it. So there's 12 people on each team. Um, the first day, which was Thursday, you played uh, four ball. So, for example, let's imagine Adi and I are on a team, Shane and Kate are on a team. We each play our own balls for the entire hole. You take the minimum score of the two players, and if you beat their minimum, you win the hole. If it's a tie, it's a tie, et cetera. And so that's called four ball. So the U.S. got squished in four ball. They were down, I think, four to one. Then the next day is what's called four sums. So then Adi and I are a team, but we had alternate shot. So then, and the U.S. got squished in that. And so the US U.S. was down again. Then on Saturday, they played both. So then they played four ball and foursomes. So the U.S. went into the singles, which is the final day is all 12 singles matches, down 10 to 8. So you think, that's not that big a deal. So it was
2: a big rally on Saturday. Yeah.
4: It was a big rally on Saturday. it was Saturday. volatile.
2: The boards were volatile that day. It could have been really bad. It could have
4: been. And, matter of fact, at one point, it looked a lot worse. And then on Sunday was the 12 singles so, matches. So by, but by the yeah. way, real
2: quickly, give me that Justin Thomas-Tiger Woods thing, because these guys are playing four... So they under.
4: played on fri- Thursday and Friday together. They played four balls, four balls, four, four balls on Thursday, and they won. And then this was maybe the key point of the entire tournament. So... On the 18th hole on foursomes, Justin Thomas hits this awful drive into the woods. Basically, so Tiger's now got to hit
2: it, and he's got. So, by the way, can you imagine playing foursomes with Tiger Woods, where you have to, he, he has to play your ball? Right. Yeah. How, how bad are you going to feel so all he's the way around a, the golf course? It's,
4: it's off. It's off the fairway, way to the right. So Tiger Woods has got 200 yards to the hole. He hits this shot, and the minute it leaves its rat, his, his club. You could see this big smile on Tiger Woods' face. He almost holds it. So it goes maybe 15 feet past the hole. But it was this incredible shot. And then the key is, Justin Thomas hits the putt. They win the point. So if they lose that hole, if Tiger, if they lose that hole, the other team gets the point. If they tie the hole, it's a half. But then Justin Thomas hit the putt, so that was seen as the big momentum because the U.S. could have been down nine to one at that point. Instead, I think at the end of that day they were down six and a half to three and a half. It was a massive swing. And then what happened? The greatest maybe mono a mono moment in golf that you can have. There's a guy on the uh, uh, foreign team. His name is Abraham Anser. He's Mexican by descent. He said a month before the Presidents Cup, "I want
2: Tiger Woods."
4: I want to play Tiger Woods. So, and by the he way, had is been like, undefeated. He had been okay. three wins, no losses, and one tie going and, into the singles. And what's
2: his international rank?
4: His Well, his world ranking is somewhere around 40 in the world.
2: Okay. What's his best performance in a major? Just trying to get a sense of this I sky. think
3: probably top 10. He's probably had right, one so, or two top ten. So let me just point out that in golf, the descent from 1 to 40 – isn't so much that in a single play, right? Right. There's not. It's like a no brainer. Oh, yeah. Not even close. So, so the so, way it, so, yeah, real sorry.
2: quickly in in the Ryder Cup, the the captains put their lineup one to twelve. They put a sequence out, not knowing who they're going to play. They just it's not, put out it's not one.
3: Exactly to, right.
4: So the way it works is maybe it's in the Ryder Cup. That could that, be. That, let me, that, okay. I'm asking for a okay. Well, let me tell you what happened in the Presidents' yeah. Cup, and that's what I was going to get to. So. Because of the order in certain matches, the U.S. went first and p- put their first pair out first. And in some, the Europeans, uh, the president's, the foreign team did. In the singles, Ernie Els, who's the president, who's the captain of the president's team, the uh, foreign team, had to go first. So he puts out Abraham Answer, the, the guy that said, "I want Tiger Woods." Now Tiger is the captain and playing. He goes Tiger Woods. So Tiger puts himself against <laughs> the guy awesome. that once that said, "I want to play Tiger
2: Woods." Uh, that is awesome. But and also, then, I li- then I li- it goes I like this. U.S.
4: It goes them, us. snake. Th- it's snakes.
2: Yeah, that is, that's great. That's so much more fun. Then you can kind of choose the matchups you want. That's And you, the and you, whole and you point. get half, half right, of them. so? But that's an improvement on the what road. What
4: happened? I, all right, so I watched the entire match. Um, if Tiger Woods isn't back, he's close to back. Because I don't. I didn't see him miss hit a shot. He beat Abraham Answer. He didn't miss a shot that I saw that entire match. Every putt he needed to hit, he hit. He ended up—he only went 16 holes because he had won enough holes by the time to end the match. He had six birdies in 16 holes, <laughs> and he had five on the back nine. Five yeah. out of seven holes in the back nine he birdied, and it looked effortless. I mean, it literally looked like he was just playing with his friends, just walking around the golf course. It was the best I had seen Tiger look, and everyone agrees he was by far of the 24 players that was there. He, and it's not just true. The eye test, statistically, closest to the hole, he was the best player by a large margin. Mm, mm, And mm. then, of course, his quote after the uh, match when he played answer was, he asked for it, he got it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is one of the great quotes of all time that Tiger made.
2: He's got that quality. It's It's just, you know... Vague thing that we so think you, matters. And, he's got that quality that is that competitiveness. You just live for in an athlete. The, the Michael Jordan had this thing where he's, he doesn't care what it is and he doesn't care who you are. He's going to take you down. And man, that seems to make a difference yeah. in athletic competition.
0: We, we did an over under on Tiger Woods's number of majors over the next couple of years a few weeks back. Would you update it at all? Well, that based was why I was looking at what he's done against the top competition in the world yet again. Well, so
4: I'll say it again. He looked extraordinarily healthy. Although I will say. This was interesting strategically, despite the U.S. being down after Friday. And this was, by the way, if you guys didn't follow it on Twitter, it was a big uproar. He, remember, he's the captain of the team. He's playing, but he decides who plays. He didn't play himself on Saturday in either of the two matches, despite being two and zero with Justin Thomas. He didn't play four balls or foursomes on Saturday, and everybody. And the U.S. was down. And, and, he, and yeah, it was a
3: big scandal. It scandal, was a bit, but it's load management, right? Even no, golfers was, have to worry about No, it was about load about that, management. Right? Yeah. Now, of
4: course, he framed it as I trust my teammates. Yeah, Of course, in other <laughs> words, he was trying to play the psychology of it. Like, if they think Tiger Woods has to bail them out, I'm showing no confidence in them. That's what he said. He said that. He said I trust my teammates. Now, of course, if the U.S. had lost, he would have been vilified. Of course, for not. I mean, because he was already two and zero, and he and Justin Thomas. But what is he
3: talking about? I mean, he's the best player. They don't Do they need load management in golf? I mean is it, it help to take a day well, off? It speaks well, for of the state Oh yes it does. does. Tiger yeah. absolutely right. needs load management. Okay.
2: He the So er- Ernie the said the state after the after the tournament the match, after the the tournament. He the they were the better team, and you know we did it all we state we the state so so t- do, do we have tweet- any sense we of the state of We state So I tweeted
4: of that on Wharton Moneyball. that on what Moneyball. So here is what he don't he intentionally. What I he intentionally, I'll put in quotes, matched up players that were playing horribly against the U.S. best players. So what he did was, let's say Dustin Johnson, who's number two in the world, he literally put their worst player up against him. He goes, "Well, we're not going to win that point. This guy's so forget it. Let's just give that point up." So he literally all through it. Mm-hmm. I have to give Ernie Els, matter of fact, I tweeted about it. I tweeted at W Moneyball, I at the Big Easy. That's Ernie Els's Twitter handle. He commented all through the four days about their use of analytics, both in pairings, how they were getting people together, about variants he talked about, about which players together have low versus high variance.
0: And it sounds like he was kind of going for a high variance just because he thought that they they're were the like, on, on paper. Exactly. Were the By the way, just teams. to give you a
4: sense of how dramatic it was, the average ranking, world ranking of the foreign team was 40.8, the second worst ever in the President's Cup. The U.S., I think, was 12 so, just to show yeah. you how big a difference it was, it was a, I mean, on paper, this was a, you know, if the U.S. had lost, should been it, been a blowout. it should have been a blowout.
2: Well, there's, I mean, should have, there's no should have been the, the, the the a These types of tournaments so are, yeah. Golf. But anyway, Bernie
4: exactly. Els, literally, I've never seen anybody for four days talk more about analytics and how he used it to set up lineups and matchups. And he said, you know, he basically said at the end, Analytics almost won it for us. You know, I
2: bet that's our those are our friends, Fifteenth Club. I'm guessing because their buddy, their their confirmation from from Matty D. It, they are they've been consulting into the Ryder Cup European team for years now. In fact, that's kind of how they got going in golf. They have a they have a buddy that, that knows uh, the captain, and they got to, and they got to use them, and they love it. And so, what you described doesn't sound like that sophisticated in analytics. But I'm I'm guessing. I'm going to guess. Because this would be an easy thing to simulate. You could just do run, lot, lot, you could simulate lots of different strategies to figure out optimal matchups. But also to and show
4: I, you back to your point, Audrey, about how much variability there is in golf. The U.S. ended up winning 16 to 14, which means on the final day they won eight, the uh, foreign team won four. If two holes had ended up differently, two putts had ended up differently, the other team, or it's, it could be 15 all, or they win 15 and a half, 14 and a half. So I wouldn't say the U.S. team won. U.S. team had two putts yeah. that were different than the international team. If those two putts go the opposite direction, their team wins sixteen. Yeah, but what to interests me is is
3: it how different the teams would be, sort of in kind of like true outcomes metrics of the, of the of golf as opposed to how much you can attribute to the strategy component. So I yeah, think it probably got question. very close because of strategy. That's but what it you, sounds like. Yeah. Yes. But if you look at the overall performance averages, probably the U.S. team was closer to 10th in the world and, and uh, the, the foreign team close well, to 40th. That's because, a really
2: interesting idea. Yeah. We can do this in football, for example. It's kind of true. We do it in baseball. You can kind of come up with the true outcomes. Box score has a lot of noise in it. So let's look at some more fundamental analyses and come up with true outcomes. We can do that in, in football. Mm-hmm. Um, we do the you know Bill Conley does this, Massey Peabody does this. We do post game evaluation. And we can say, well, based on the way they played, this was a you know thirteen point game, but it really, if they right. played again, it would have been a three point nine point game. I, I, so the question is, what does that look like in golf? Yeah.
4: Well, I thought what Audi was—I I don't know the answer—but I thought what Audie was also referring to is match play highlights the use of analytics in this way because, in does. other words, if they play an infinite number of holes, the U.S. team is going to have a lower score. And matter of fact, you can—they all play lots of holes on the tour. We actually can look at the difference in stroke average between the U.S. players and the foreign players, and it was about one point two. So the U.S. guys shoot on average on somewhere. Okay, but direct- that's
2: ex ante. That's ex ante. No,
4: no, I know that. I know that. But I'm saying is, they actually, although match play is all they care about is who wins the hole, they do actually keep score on the hole. The problem is. the score doesn't mean anything.
2: No, but we could go to more fundamentals. You know, driving distance, um, uh, distance distance to the cup. You can come up with these these more fundamental No, but
4: but let me say again why. There's a challenge with that. Let's say you and I are playing together, Shane, and you drive the ball into the woods. No. So Likely. what I'm going to now do is I'm going to take – let's say it's a 450-yard hole. Rather than hitting my driver, I'm going to take my iron out, hit a 260 in the middle of the fairway, and now I've given my team a mm-hmm. shot. For yeah. sure. So for those sure. stats but, but, don't yeah. mean the but, same thing. Hey,
2: you're the analyst, man. You're the quant. You're, that's, a, that's just a challenge for you empirically. Now you've got to consider – Sequence of shots.
0: Yeah, you do need a more sophisticated model, but you can. You can model you can it. It's, it's still factor modelable. that in. in, in the, it's no, it's, it's 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 known known things. Yeah, it's just exactly. like harder exactly. to model, but it's
4: also a different objective function. It's all I'm pointing out. I'm not mm. trying to minimize. So I'm not saying I can't do it. I'm saying I'm trying. I'm not trying to minimize no. my score on the hole. I'm trying to no, win we, the we, hole.
2: We totally understand that. I just love this question that Ali's posing about what was the, what's the fundamental play here, and he's trying to get at Ali's trying to get at saying, okay, L says. We were supposed to lose by a bunch, and we almost won. That's analytics. And Adi's saying, well, is it? To see how you played. Maybe you played unbelievably. Maybe it was just positive variance, and, and analytics was neutral. Can we parse the analytics mm-hmm. from the positive variance? Yeah, so, so I'm
3: conjecturing that over the course of a four-day tournament with dozens of, of rounds and lots of players, that Huge those variance. true outcomes... What's that? Go, go ahead. With, with those two outco- those true outcomes would look much more like what they should be um, over the course of a long oh, tournament. The,
2: but that's, is that a long tournament? I don't think no. 12 uh, players no, in four days is not long. Yeah, but we're that's averaging
3: on an individual basis, it's not long at all. But you're talking about a full I team. not so think so. so. I don't think I mean, but, I
0: feel like the s- whole structure of these tournaments is to try and kind of make them as, I think, exciting and as by that I mean as, as noisy as, many as possible. many dice like rolls the, as possible? I think Ryder Cup, you know, this. I love the Ryder Cup kind of President's Cup structure because I think it tries to, you know, it's almost like a recognition that, like, you're going to have a lot of variance in, in kind but of talent. Here, here's you what you can to, do, though.
4: Here's what you can do. You huh. can go from the hole backwards, and here's what I mean by that. Putting, once you're on the green, that's easy to evaluate. So my guess is it would yeah. be easy to get who team putted better? Because forget well, strategy. You know, once you're on the green, no, but
2: that's not that's not true either. The strategy bit that you were talking about off the tee applies to the cup. So someone runs a putt in, and you have to be more aggressive. And it's either make it or but you lose. But it's easier
4: to do once you're on the green. Uh, it's definitely easier to do. I don't know.
2: I think it's got the same challenge. But I think I think all of this is doable because, as as Shane says, it's knowable strategy. It would take a more sophisticated model. But I think the the big I think the general points we're making here are. What's the role of variance? And we tend to underestimate the role of variance in these situations. And even us, who are like golf you know, fans, probably underestimate the role of variance. But I was just like, what is it? What is it? And let's not let's praise L's for using analytics, and let's yeah. praise 15th Club, but let's not too quickly run to that being the difference. It might be, and odds are it probably made a difference, but did it make that much difference? Because you make this great point, Eric. For all, for, <laughs> this is sports, man for the rest of eternity, people are going to remember that Tiger Woods' team won in Melbourne in this last show down there. And they're going to forget that, as you say, it took two putts from the whole thing having which It's yeah. just, just remarkable.
4: But by the way, I'm not going to lower my estimate. To your question, I'm not going to lower my estimate of Tiger Woods' as majors based on of what I saw. Not. How about yeah, that? Yeah. Well, yeah. yes, definitely not. All right,
2: fellas. Right. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Money, but we still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Got the whole crew in here this morning. Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Cade Massey. You guys can jump in here and join us. 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 1-844- 844 942-7866, our email is businessradio at siriusxm.com, businessradio at siriusxm.com, or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle. Great way to reach out, ask us questions, raise new ideas to discuss, whatever you got. At WMoneyBall, not a bad way to be in touch with the world of sports analytics. In this half hour, our first interview for the day, delighted to have Ken Pomeroy join us. Legend Ken Pomroy. It's college basketball season as we're slowly rolling out of football We turn our eyes to basketball. Ken Palm. People always looking to Ken Palm for understanding what's going on in college basketball. He's been following basketball for a long time. He's been using advanced stats, one of the first to use advanced stats in college basketball since 2004. He writes for The Athletic. Been doing this in various forums for a long time. ESPN Slate, Deadspin. Ken, been on the show before. Delighted to have you back.
1: Yeah, good morning, guys. I'm delighted to be back on. Thanks for having
2: me. You bet. Where are you calling in from this morning, Ken?
1: Uh, good old Salt Lake City.
2: Salt Lake City. Are you out there full time?
1: Yes. Yep. Yeah, I've been living out here for over a decade now. I grew up on the East Coast, but uh, been out West basically my whole uh, adult life.
2: You don't talk to people who are choosing to live in Salt Lake City who aren't ecstatic about the choice. This is good living Good living out there. We appreciate your joining us this early in the morning, especially this 830 slot, you West Coasters. Um, thank you for making the time for us. Listen, we have we have lots we want to talk with you about. We need to get kind of up to speed on the 2019-2020 basketball season. But first, you've got an interesting background that I think everybody needs to hear a little bit about. You were originally a meteorologist. So can you talk about this transition you've made from meteorology to basketball analytics, and especially kind of the foundations and the benefits you think you you bring to basketball analytics because of your training as a meteorologist?
1: Yeah, and I should point out I was originally an engineer and then then became a meteorologist. Okay, that's a pretty boring story. but uh, It's interesting.
2: But goes, you know, we're, we're about to have Brian Burke on the second half of the show. Brian is a football analyst for ESPN. And Brian started out as an engineer. And he talks about kind of a complete worldview change that happened when he went, started studying statistics. And he had to start thinking probabilistically, that engineers don't think probabilistically. So I would think the move from engineering to meteorology is actually quite interesting because it's a world from relatively deterministic um, considerations to, to this highly probabilistic one.
1: Yes, that is true. I mean, that that's really the the benefit of being a meteorologist. I mean, I've always said, like, if you want to get into the prediction business, the sports prediction business or the sports analytics business, like serving you know, like a year as a meteorologist is would be really uh, beneficial to people. Because, um, as you point out, like, just looking at the world probabilistically is something that uh, you know the average person seems to struggle with. But um, it's you know it's necessary when you're predicting the outcomes of of games. Really, nothing is. Nothing is certain there are always upsets, and the reason upsets occur is because um, a lot of a lot of contests are based on you know just small probabilistic events in each game that uh, sometimes go against the favorite for reasons that are uh, difficult to understand
0: right. Right, and and I can imagine meteorology teaches you. I mean, it probably teaches you specific techniques for doing predictions that it can carry forward into sports. But I would guess that some of the advantages of doing something like meteorology is you learn a certain humility about your prediction that you wouldn't necessarily in in other fields.
1: Yeah, I mean the prediction business in meteorology is uh, is a lot more profound than it is in sports. You know, <laughs> I mean sports are fun and, and a lot of people love them, but. Everybody is affected by the weather at some point. I mean, whether they're interested in it or not, they're going to be affected by it. So if you screw up a forecast, if you say it's not going to rain and it does rain, you know, that's impacting, like, somebody's picnic plans or somebody's wedding or, you know, something worse than that. So when you screw it up, you definitely, uh, uh, you know, Feel feel bad for uh, for missing that prediction.
2: What do you think has changed the most in the world of basketball analytics since you came on and started doing your thing in the early two thousands? That's a pretty long run, and it's kind of been during the rise of analytics. You're still right there at the frontier, but it must have changed. What what? How would you characterize the changes over the last fifteen years?
1: i I'm, you know just speaking personally. Uh, I think I was uh, inspired by baseball analytics and certainly inspired by the attitude of baseball analytics back then which was you know the people in charge are really stupid and wrong and if we just use the data we can solve all these problems and uh i think to some extent that is true in baseball but it's not as true in basketball it's you know the the nature of the sport is just so different that um a trained expert uh not using data uh is still really useful and uh, a lot of the people that i thought were pretty stupid are actually pretty smart and wow it's just a good quote (laughs) (laughs) not all of them mind you but uh, you know (laughs) right but i have you know i guess over the years i've certainly been impressed as i've gotten to know these people personally it's like yeah you know like these people do have some knowledge that actually will help my work and help the work of analytics and i probably should uh listen to them instead of just uh assume that uh they're idiots and that I can outsmart them with my, you know, programming code.
2: That's great, Ken.
4: So, Ken, this is Eric Brother, I was going to ask you, are there areas in college basketball that you've studied that you've found basically what I'll call irreducible uncertainty? Like you could, you've you tried to improve the prediction or you've tried to solve it, but just it's just at least given the data we have and the methods we have, they're just not solvable yet.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the obvious answer is, is on the defensive side. You know, individual defense is something that seems like it—it's personal. It's not been easy to solve, and it seems like it will never get easier for some reason. There's just so much team context involved in individual defense that uh, you know, you're certainly at the NBA level, but you see it's at the college level too. Now the transfer rules are more liberal. We see guys change teams. Um, you know, the effect of their defense from team to team is really hard to measure. You think it'd be pretty consistent. But uh, it's hard to find that consistency. There's just so much team context and and kind of coaching context that uh, measuring individual impact on defense is still uh, extremely difficult. And uh, whatever measurements you do get have very large error bars.
2: So interesting. You know, we had the same issue in other sports, of course. Everything but baseball, actually. But you know, we had the PFF just came out with this um, this new ranking for. For, for war for in, for professional football and they they but they have to struggle with the contribution of one guy when he's on the field with 10 other 10 teammates and opposite 11 guys is how can you pull out an individual when you've got all those interdependencies is so so it's a big challenge, but it's an interesting one. So listen you you, you guys are you're, you're part of a, a, a new development in college basketball which are these net rankings. What do we need to know about this new system? It just debuted the net rankings in college basketball?
1: Yeah, so the net rankings uh, replace the RPI. I mean, people are familiar with the college basketball uh, selection process for the tournament. They've certainly heard of the RPI, which existed since 1981 and was a you know a great formula for 1981. But uh, obviously, there have been advances in measuring team strength since then. And so, um, so the net rating is this uh, kind of initiative by the NCAA to uh, maybe leverage more advanced techniques. We don't exactly know how it was developed and. Some skepticism on how advanced the techniques are, but at least we know it, it includes scoring margin, so it, it is a better ranking of team strength than the RPI, and uh, and so that's what the NCAA uses now, and it's uh, it's you know it's basically designed to kind of be the basis for uh, judging a team's resume. So, but
2: but Kendra, you just didn't you didn't explain it at all. You didn't. We, we, I think we vaguely understood what RPI was. Well, it, I it think was it's a secret.
1: A, I mean, it's, it's not.
2: Is that, so is that, yeah, is that I think black they hired box?
3: Google or someone to create this, and they, they published what stats went into it, but they didn't tell you what they did. Wow, surprising that that would be palatable. Well,
4: maybe, Ken, let me ask a related question. What evidence do we have? I'm sure you have, you've seen it. What evidence do we have that it's better? Like, does it better predict outcomes of games? Does it better predict score margins that we observe? Like, how do we now that it's been out, how do we know it's actually a better ranking system?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, uh, so, it, it's not designed to predict scores. So, we don't, it is designed to be, it's weird, you know, it is designed to be predictive in a sense. Like, it's, it's using a scoring margin to rank the teams, but the actual output, it's not a number. We don't have a number for the ranking. It's just a, it's just one to 353 in terms of the teams, but there's no rating there. So, uh, so we don't know, I guess, for certain that it's better at predicting like scoring margin because it doesn't do that. It's probably marginally better at predicting outcomes. I mean, the, the end result is it's very similar to my system. So, so that so if you like my system, like you'll probably <laughs> okay. like the net. Okay. Well, <laughs> did you, you, so gives you wait, some? Did you some confidence did you like a rank
3: correlation between your system and their system, and what is it? I mean, it must be very similar. I mean, particularly if you looked only the top fifty teams. I mean, how different are they?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I haven't done that analysis myself, but from what I've seen, yeah, it is very similar. Like the top fifty, you know, you'll probably have, you know, forty. Six forty-five of the same team, something like that. But Ken,
2: you, you you obviously need to see the dynamics of this thing, and you must be saying that it's not just a snapshot that looks similar, but you see them move relatively similar. That would give you greater confidence, right? The belief revision, essentially.
1: Yes, yes. It seems like the main difference is that uh, the net is very heavily dependent on scoring margin. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean the best like the best example this year is that. You know Utah won a game by 94 points over the worst team in in basketball, and it's actually the NCAA record for margin of victory. And they I don't I don't go gaga over uh, that kind of a win. And so in my system, they ranked, you know around 100th, and in the net right now, they ranked like 50th. And that one game probably explains most of that difference. Right, so.
2: right, right. We're not, we're talking to Ken Pomeroy, longtime college basketball analyst. Ken Pomeroy, he is presently writing for the Athletic, but you can find him on. Kenpom.com as well, for his rankings in college basketball. Ken, the, the, even a casual observer might have noticed the number one team's getting knocked off every other week, it seems, in college basketball. Is that because it's just an interesting, volatile year? Are the rankings wrong? What, what should we infer from the fact that we've had so many different number ones?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, what we should infer is that this is college basketball, and uh, it's hard to figure out who the number one team is right now. Mm-hmm. And that is pretty much true every year this time of year In fact, i was you know just kind of looking through my ratings going back to like recent seasons and looking at kind of how the top team was rated and um you know people have like looked at the top teams right now and compared them to the end of season in previous years and like ohio state would be you know maybe a fringe top 10 team by that method they're number one currently in my system Um, but if you go back to like last year this time they would have been number two if you like the year before they would have been number two it's every year you know we're trying to sort out who the best team is this time of year and We'll have some clarity in two months, but right now we don't have much clarity in kind of the way the losses have fallen and the way that the uh, media ranks teams. We've just happened to have this run of, uh, of number one teams losing here seemingly every week or every other week.
2: If you were going to give a little primer to those of us just now turning our attention to basketball, having been in the football cave for the last three or four months, what would you tell us? Like, just give us a landscape. Tell us some corners to look into. Because usually, you know, I'll wander out here. And I'll say, oh, well, what's Duke doing? What's Kentucky doing? What's Michigan State doing? But where else should we, what, what should we be paying attention to? What might we ought pay more attention than we would otherwise?
1: Well, I'd say the unique part of this season is just the lack of kind of high-level talent you know last year obviously zion williamson was stealing the show at this point in time and there is no and Zion williamson was a, was a generational kind of talent and athlete and and there is no guy like him this year but there's really nothing close like as far as who is the best player in the game like there's just no obvious choice right now this, this year's freshman class wasn't particularly great last year there were a lot of defections to uh, professional basketball mm-hmm. um so the talent level is probably down a bit this year and that is is the story. So, you know, whatever team you're looking at, whether it's Duke or Kentucky or Kansas or, you know, Ohio state uh, has been kind of an interloper this year, a new name at the top. Uh, mm-hmm. n- none of those teams necessarily have a, a superstar that you're going to see uh you know the ESPN talking heads uh, talk about a lot because um, you know it just doesn't exist right now.
2: That sounds that sounds like fun if that's the way it still looks in March. You go into a tournament without any obvious favorites, and in some ways, that's I mean, if you're if you're a Duke fan, you'd like to have you know Williamson, but it, otherwise, it's kind of fun to have these new faces, no?
1: Certainly, if you uh, yeah are not invested in any of those teams, it, it is fun. I mean, I think both ends are fun. Like when you have a super dominant team, like that's fun. It gives kind of a polarizing uh, team for people to root for or root against, but uh, having a wide open tournament as well is uh, is fun as well. I mean, it's certainly fun for me is trying to predict things. And, yeah, from a prediction perspective. And having perspective. Doing so. like, Yeah, right. it's, it's a lot of fun.
2: So they also made a, a three-point line change this year. They backed it out closer to NBA level, right? What, what have you seen the consequence of that be?
1: Yeah, so they moved it, actually not to NBA level, but to uh, the international distance, which is a little shorter than the NBA. Okay. Um, so it's about an 18-inch difference from last year. And uh, not surprisingly, uh, three-point percentage has been down. Uh, I think by the time the season ends, it'll be down less than a percent from where it was last year. So uh, not a huge impact there. And the number of attempts, actually, have not really – they've gone down. But, again – less than one shot in a hundred is really uh, has been changed from a three to a two this year. So
2: does it change? Does it change? Are there any knock on effects? Because they're spread out a little bit more as a result. So does rebounding change? Does it increase pace of play or anything like that?
1: Yeah. Pace of play has not been really affected. Um, rebounding has not been really affected. The, the one, the two, I guess, profound effects. And it's hard to say how much the three point line is affecting this, but you kind of think it has to be the three point line is that, one, uh, fouls are down again from last year, so we're really at a point we've never seen uh, as few fouls called as we have this season in the history of college basketball.
5: That's beautiful,
1: oh, man.
3: All right. Are fewer fouls being made or called?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is a great question that uh, I don't know the answer to, and I don't know how we figure the answer out on that. But, uh, but it's, a, it's a huge question because scoring is down this year, and you can certainly concoct a scenario where officials are just there are the same amount of fouls happening and just fewer fouls are being called in fact we're seeing two point percentage actually is down from last year which is a little concerning that's driving partly driving the scoring decrease along with three point percentage and free throws but mm-hmm. um, but yeah that's uh that's an issue that requires uh, more investigation than some of those experts I was talking about because it's hard to really kind of statistically prove that uh, officials are actually calling fewer fouls and they should put it they should put it happens. on their
2: advertisements man nca double, double a basketball we're calling fewer flat fouls come watch the game but you do you do ratings. So, so tell us about these ratings you do
1: yeah yeah uh so you know obviously officiating is a a hot button issue in the sport and i feel like it's one of those issues even for some of my analytical friends like i'm always disappointed how they kind of view officiating i mean this is a game that is fast-paced and uh uh, you know, the players are having to make really quick decisions and often make mistakes, and the officials are in the same boat. Like, it's a really difficult game to officiate. You have to make quick decisions. You can't, you know, five seconds after something happened, you know, stop play and be like, hey, I I think I saw a, a call back there five seconds ago. Let me call a foul. You know, like, that doesn't work. You have to make an instantaneous call. And uh, inevitably, lots of mistakes are made during the game. So, uh, officiating is a fun topic, and I basically come up with a way to, like, rate officials uh not that I can actually rate how good they are or get that from a box score. Like, nobody can do that. But um, I do rate them based on the quality of the games they are working, assuming that they're getting those game assignments based on how good, you know, the coaches and, and, and uh, the official supervisors uh, think they're doing. So I have a really? rating of all the officials based on kind of the average quality of game that they work.
2: That's super interesting. And then how, how do you operationalize that even? though what, 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 How do you determine the quality of a game?
1: Yeah, so I have a a rating that I developed, I don't know, seven, eight years ago called uh, the Thrill Score, which basically looks at essentially two components of the game. You know, one is how uncertain the outcome of the game is, so how close the win probability for the favorite is to 50%. And then it also looks at how good the competing teams are. So if you have a really competitive game between two high-level teams, that game will get a high rating. For instance, uh, the beginning of the season, the Michigan State-Kansas game actually the Duke Kentucky game they were uh, one and two in my no Michigan State Kansas they were one and two in my system to start the season and uh so that season opening game that they had is currently currently the highest rated game that it has been scheduled all season
2: okay do you consider time slots I mean the there are there are feature games just from a TV perspective as well no
1: yeah that's actually an interesting idea and I do not consider that uh, I do consider a little bit how high scoring the game will be so you know if the game's predicted to be an 80-75 to 75 game, it's maybe more likely to get a, a nice time slot than a 50-45 to 45 game, so that, that is considered as well.
3: Ken, okay, I, I wanted to reverse you just back to the referee question because I'm intrigued on, on how you can actually evaluate this. If you think about if you watch a game and you watch a referee do their job, it might it'd be very hard to figure out how many missed calls there were in the sense that a foul that should have been called wasn't. That's very hard. It's continuous. But if you look at the calls they made, what fraction of them are wrong when they call a foul and really shouldn't have been called and and does that vary across referees in a measurable and consistent you're asking way
0: for like a pro football focus like a pff rating for every single like, well so when you when you make a call basically. right when you
3: make a call was it the right call yeah. as opposed to obviously you have missed calls and there are too many of those to actually track
1: yeah uh so this is just a federal guess but it also is like you know a probabilistic kind of endeavor as well because you know if you're familiar with basketball and you think about the block charge call i mean that's a a call. If you watch on, you know, it's a call call has to be made instantly. And if you watch on replay, you know, you, some calls are obvious, but some are not. Like you can watch them on replay, and two broadcasters will still disagree on whether it should be a block or a charge. So, there's a probabilistic aspect to these calls as yes. well. But you know, I'd say like. So what can yep. Yeah, if you could fundamentally know like what the call actually should be every time there's a call, I'd say like, I'd say like close to probably 10% of foul calls, you know, somewhere around there are. Are incorrect,
3: which Sounds which does right. match what the you know, say an umpire in baseball tends to miss the strike zone about ten percent of the times. So, Ken, I know
4: we're down on time. Just maybe a yes no question. Do you see a world where art? You have two topics you talked about. Do you see a world where artificial intelligence, meaning video consumption, can now make an assessment about the quality of defense? So I know how close I am to the next player, and I also know when fouls are called incorrectly. Do you see a world where technology solves this problem for us? If we're talking to you in ten years, is this problem solved?
1: Uh, no, it's not solved. I mean, it's, we're getting closer to solving it. Certainly, the first part, of the defense, probably more so than the officiating.
2: Right, right. Well, that but that that alone would be a great contribution because it's so dodgy right now and challenging subjectively. And then you're talking about the interdependency of the players. I love this observation you made earlier about a guy who transfers his defensive place seemingly doesn't transfer with him, which suggests that it's much more dependent on his co- to his teammates. Than we might otherwise think. Ken, listen, man, we got to let you go, but we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us, especially calling in from way out there in the Rocky Mountains. We wish you the best with your work. We love following you, and we hope to talk to you more down the road.
1: All right, sounds great, guys. Thanks for having me on.
2: Absolutely. Ken Pomeroy, legendary Ken Pomeroy. You can follow him at, at kenpom.com for anything you need to know about college football, I mean, college basketball analytics. That is the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Eric, Adi, Shane, faculty colleagues here, longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborators. Last show of the decade, last show of the teens, last show of the year. Last guest of the, of the teens. We're rolling into our second decade, you know, according to the calendar anyway sometime next month, just a couple weeks from now. We're just off the phone with Ken Pomroy. Guys, one thing we didn't get to, he, he's, he's tweeted recently this great little question. If, if, if two teams in college basketball were tied at halftime and you wanted one statistical observation to best predict who would win
0: the game. One observation from the box score. one box—well, box Well, box What's score-ish. Kind?
2: I don't think it's quite box score. I think that was, a, a, was yeah. a... So one statistical observation to best predict the winner of the game. What would it be? And we, we you know, given the audience a chance to come up with their answer because we didn't quite we didn't come up with his answer. So Adi gave a very clever answer. Adi's answer was who's at, who's at home, <laughs>
3: which is very uh, very no. accessible from the box court. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's,
2: it's the most accessible thing. You just like what time zone are or you know, whatever. It's like that's a, it's wonderfully parsimonious. It's low cost, and also as Adi argued later, it's ubiquitously always relevant. Works. It's yeah. like no matter what the situation, it's going to be relevant. In fact, it's going to be kind of equally relevant everywhere. So it's really, I think, a really good answer and clever one. It's also typical Audi. Audio always gives base rates, and that's what we want people to do. Like, start with base rates. because they don't know anything. Yeah. I, <laughs> if, you, if you didn't know anything else, no, but this is the... Yeah, this is it's great. a the, theme, the, yeah. If you didn't know... Any, sometimes a little knowledge gets you in trouble, right? A little mm-hmm. knowledge is a dangerous yeah. thing. So if you didn't know anything, what would you answer? Audi gives the right answer. It's, it's, it's home field. But Ken's answer is... Who's shooting below their season average for three point? Who's below their historical or expected no. three point percentage, and why is that? So, Adi, give us give us his, his
3: rationale. The, the rationale is regression to the mean. So the, the fact that they have un- the, the game is tied because one team is better and is underperformed, and you can guess at that. Mm-hmm. But I would guess that his statistic
4: is more valuable later in the season than earlier in the season. Absolutely, because you, you have, have better Well, yeah you, yeah, you
0: know that base rate better.
3: Yeah. And, but, but, but my other point is is that sometimes that's, that, that there isn't a team that under, is underperforming, and now you're stuck with no information. You don't have any and you, information. And no. home team always works. <laughs> but
0: but don't get too
2: excited about yours because you want to you want to preach the gospel of regression to the mean I as do. Well. This I is do, really yeah. really important. Yeah. And if you have, I mean, it's probably the most Outside of a strong base rate like home court, it's probably the most parsimonious statistic you could yeah. use for any prediction in the future.
3: But you, you, you would, you would uh, divide it up and say, why three-point percentage? Why not two yeah, percent? Right. Yeah. Right? Why, not? why not free throw? Why not
4: free yeah, throw? Percent. Well, that's why my guess, which turned out to be patently false, was why don't you just measure the total number of shots a team takes? Because at the end of the day, I'd rather have double the number. I guarantee right. you if at the end of the game I take twice as many shots as your team, I have a 99% chance it, to win the it, game.
2: It, but what is it? It means right, a hundred percent. And that's also a base rate answer of sorts. And if a team that is shooting more, they're they're either getting more offensive rebounds or they're getting turnovers. Or the exactly. turnover ratio is in their favor. And both of those things are really Though important. If
0: two teams are tied at halftime, and one of the teams has shot dramatically more. Doesn't that mean their shooting accuracy is proportionately dramatically less? <laughs> well, that Which matter of fact, gonna fact that's going to help me. That's yeah. going to help my prediction <laughs> be yeah, even better. Right. Yeah, it goes in the same direction. Uh, there maybe, you go.
2: I maybe Ken didn't there consider it. Maybe you weren't patently false here. Yeah. Maybe you're spot on. All right. Well, listen, we have another guest we're also excited to have come on here, a longtime friend of the show, Brian Burke, who's going to join us. Brian writes for ESPN. In a former life, he was a Navy pilot. He was an engineer. But in the this segment of his life, he is one of the pioneers in modern football analytics. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, guys. You calling from Northern Virginia?
5: Reston, Virginia. Yeah.
2: All right. All right. Glad to have you, man. You're making waves in the world of football analytics, and because analytics is so important these days, you're making waves in the world of football. How does it feel to be out there on the frontier, Brian?
5: Yeah, it's um, it's kind of weird. Uh, honestly. Uh, you're right. We're we are making waves, and we're we're becoming a big deal. And uh, <laughs> Brian, you've been a
2: big deal to us for a long time.
5: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, and I'm not patting myself on the back. It's that uh, when I, you know, when we announce something, uh, we've got a new feature, capability, or something. Um, some people get upset that uh, we, you know, we didn't. Um, you know, go through certain channels or, or uh, you know, announce it in the right way. So we're kind of outgrowing our little <laughs> niche, and uh, it, that you have to, you pay a price when you do that. Well, let's
2: talk about that. So it was it yesterday that you made the announcement. Sometime very recently, you announced that you've got kind of real time route recognition. So you can you can like as soon as the play is run, you can say this was the route combination that the team ran, and that's yeah, so a we, real yeah. accomplishment.
5: Well, oh, it, it it's um yeah it is it, it, it's a, it's a fun project definitely so w- what I tend to do when we when we build some uh new shiny toy I Monday night you know right before kickoff I'll I'll start tweeting about it but um yeah so this is similar to the the coverage recognition model uh we talked about when I was on uh, at the beginning of the season and this is actually easier to do uh route recognition you know there's a there's a you know, fixed number of different types of routes. And, you know, it's just a matter of kind of shape recognition.
2: um, So let me stop you there for a second, because that might be something that everyone wouldn't know. And we could ask, you could ask the world, like, what number of what? Brian just said there's a fixed number of routes. I mean, I guess there's a finite number of things you could do on a field, but it's even more restricted than that. There's only a certain number of routes that people draw up. And then what's that number audience? What's that number? I think you, you guys came up with something like 41. Is that right?
5: I did thirty. It, 30. I mean, it depends okay. on you know, how obscure you want to go into um, the the lesser kind of uncommon routes. Uh, so it's it's a balance of kind of what um, you know what would be useful for us at ESPN to talk about, and as well as some of the things using the tracking data. Uh, actually, there there's some limitations, and and uh, um, unlike maybe the coverage recognition, the I think humans would would do a sort of measurably or up, let's say detectably better job at okay. uh, at charting the routes.
4: So, Brian, let me ask you a question. Bradlow. How did you determine, like, what I'll call the discreteness? For example, a 10-yard curl route and an 11-yard curl route are technically different plays. Um, mm-hmm. So how did you decide, you know, is left versus right different? Is 10 yards versus 11 yards different? Where did you kind of draw the line, and how did you think about it?
5: Uh, typically, there's so, uh, uh, Dominique Foxworth, who uh, is an analyst for ESPN and uh, also lives in the D.C. area, uh, conveniently for me, has been a great help.
1: He's a former, uh, he a former player.
5: He's in the NFL, and he was former president of the Players Association, if, if anyone's familiar. Anyway, he... Um, he might be on TV right now, actually. Uh, on Get Up. <laughs> he's on Wednesdays and Thursdays on GetUp. So, he was a great help to me, and with both the, the defensive coverage uh, stuff and the route recognition. And so he taught me these things, like, hey, how do you group these routes in terms of, you know, short, intermediate, deep, uh, uh-huh. and that's what he said. You know, five yards is short. You know, five to ten is intermediate. Beyond ten is deep. Um, it depends, but it also depends on like the. Sort of the let's say the departure angle. So after their break, mm. are they breaking uh, laterally or is it more of a vertical break like a post or corner route? So um, he, he was super helpful, and, and I based a lot of the kind of discreteness around his recommendations. And so so
0: it, uh, just, just to clarify, it's it's it, I think it's worth clarifying that, like, this was kind of done, like, in a manual, sort of, like, with subject domain, like, expert kind of way, as opposed to in sort of a more automated machine learning kind of way.
5: Yeah, so, the right word, I I was thinking this is unsupervised, but the right, we didn't have training data. We didn't buy a a data set from uh, one of these charting companies, uh, and... so we we would call it semi-supervised. So semi-supervised means you have like a very small number of actual labeled kind of training data and a very very large set of unlabeled data. And uh so what I did was I mean you, we don't ha- we don't have a, you know, 20,000 examples of of labeled data, but um but anybody who knows football or anybody who's played Madden, let's say, <laughs> knows knows what a uh, you know corner route is or post or an in or a slant, and there, there's there's uh, a uh, something called the route tree if you're not familiar, and it's it's very very standard. I mean, it comes from the days of Bill Walsh, I believe, and uh, pretty pretty much every team kind of adheres to the same set of route definitions, even though they may have different names for them. Um, so. Uh, that's, that's how we, you know, we approached it. Um, and, and we had, so I built uh, what I called archetypes. So there's this kind of, uh, uh, platonically perfect, you know, post route. Uh, so I went through and just watched hundreds of plays and chose, uh, certain routes, maybe about five of each type, and then averaged those. Um, simply just their X and Ys, and it, it basically built. So I now I had a library of 30 mm-hmm. archetypical uh, representations of, of all 30 types of routes.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but by the way, this, this is a just quick, quick departure real quickly. Do you think you could ever model this precisely enough, and all the context as well, precisely enough to start judging receivers on how well they run routes? Yeah.
5: Um, Possibly, I think so. Down the road, I don't think I can do it very well yet. One of the easy, easiest things I, uh, you can do, um, since you mentioned I was a Navy pilot, um, uh, if you're familiar with something called G forces, uh, G force. So if, you, if you're in a Navy jet and and you, you turn very very hard, right? Uh, that's you're pulling G's, mm-hmm. and that means you're <clears throat> the force on your body and on the aircraft is a certain factor. Uh, you know, let's say seven Gs. That means your your the forces on your body are seven times the force of gravity. So you can do the same thing with receivers. I watch receivers uh, like like jets basically. And so if they make a break, like a just like a jet would break, right? Wow! Uh, I can we can measure their Gs using oh my. The tracking data.
2: Geez, no That's, kidding. So presumably you do this for, for runner, running backs as well. So pe- this is yeah. why you know so these some of these backs can change direction without really slowing down presumably that's an example of throwing more G's.
5: Yeah. So, um, so the problem was that there are enough uh, sort of um, glitches I don't, in the data that okay. like if you start sorting, you know, from highest G to, you know, lowest G yeah. routes, you get some, some uh, funky example. Yeah. So you have to kind of, you know, you have to weed those out. So you know, down the road... I'll, I'll down the road. Right no, we, we're,
2: we're, we're here for some down the road. I mean, you're you're kind of yeah. laying the groundwork, and it'll get better over time. This is something that I think some outsiders and even some practitioners miss a little bit, and maybe we get it wrong as well, because we'll get excited about a framework you put out there, and I mean sometimes, Brian, I mean you. We'll get excited about a framework, even if it's flawed, because we know it's, like, the right direction. Like, five years from now, people are going to be building on that, and it's going to be yeah. great.
5: Yeah, no, flawed, <laughs> definitely. Um you know what the best thing about, like, projects like this for me, though, is is I get to learn football. Like, I, I played football in high school, but I'm not a former coach or former pro player, even college player. Like, so the, the thing I lack in terms of being a football analyst, being well-rounded, like, okay, I can – I can I know the stats and I know the analytics, but I, I don't know the X and O's as well as uh, – nearly as well as, as someone – is really study the game, mm-hmm. and I get to learn that now. And mm-hmm. it makes me a much more well-rounded uh, analyst. Mm-hmm. And um, like you were saying, that you're able to change directions without slowing down. So one of the things I learned was that in the NFL, uh, p- the players don't actually make kind of cuts the way you think they do. Uh, like you have this idea in your head where a player will run like a straight line, turn 90 degrees, one way or the other, and you know, running an out or an in, they never, ever, ever do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in college, they they will, and in, in high school, they will do that. Um, those kinds of cuts, where they kind of run to a point and then make a make a very, very sharp cut. In the NFL, they can't do that because the defensive backs are so fast mm-hmm. that any anything like that is they're going to get clobbered. They're going to be well covered. So, what they do these things called speed cuts, where they they round. Out uh, All their cuts mm-hmm. rarely do you get like a very very sharp kind of plant of flip. this sounds
3: like a a baseball player running the bases it's the first thing I learned at my baseball camp when I was eight years old is how to run the bases and You got to make these turns around the corners because you can't make a sharp turn because right. it causes you to slow down too much to make a 90-degree <laughs> diff- turn cause you to stop but it's too it's, many Gs. It's,
2: it's counter it's counter yeah. to what I think we think about these routes, maybe because we grew up playing it at the lower yeah, levels. Yeah, like you got
0: in counter tunely, I, I always grew up thinking the sharper the route, yeah, the, the more the likely better. you and, are yeah, to but you, lose your it cost you too effect. much momentum. But you, that, yeah, but, but only
2: at the
5: top levels. In yeah. fact,
2: you hear receivers criticized for rounding off their routes, right? I mean, this is something that people the, the true experts say.
5: There's uh, an amazing amount of so I watched probably, you know, a couple hours of like YouTube clinics of you know, like these camps and things these coaches like teaching you know route techniques and there's an amazing amount of technique involved you think it's just about running speeds and, and making a turn you know maybe making one cut or something but there's an amazing amount of kind of footwork and even headwork. so another thing i learned was that <clears throat> like there's something called double moves which means like hey i'm going to f- uh run let's say a, a deep route I'm, I'm running vertically i'm going to f- run a uh, post, which is a cut to the inside, to the middle of the field, and but for a couple of steps. But then I'm going to turn back outside, mm-hmm. uh, and then that becomes a corner. Uh, so we would call that a you know, post corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are several examples of, of double moves where you kind of fake one route for, for a second and then you're actually doing another route. Mm-hmm. And those can be very, very effective. Uh, But they take time to develop, so you have to have good protection. One of the things i learned is at the NFL level, they don't really do that. They don't actually – like the double move happens so fast. It's mostly kind of like a stutter step and a head fake. And that's one of the things Mm. I was talking about, why human like visual watchers will – probably do a better job, especially with double moves, because it's, it's undetectable but, um, on the on the tracking, but visually you can kind of see like a stutter step and a head fake and then a break. Yep. And so um, that's what I love. I just, I love learning those things, even right. though it's kind of a, a, you know, a wrench in my, um, in the gears of, of my model, it's it's fascinating to me.
2: Well, so Brian, r- remind us and remind the audience how what your age is.
5: My age? How old
3: you are. And that's essentially what he's asking. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I'm I'm a prime number. I'll, I'll let you guys figure that out. I'm
2: going to go 51. That's not prime. Um, what's it, 53?
5: Oh, no, no, not a prime number. I'm sorry. We, we, a I'll perfect plan. square? <laughs> I'm a square. I'm a perfect square. <laughs> <so plan>. 49. <laughs> yeah. yeah
2: 49. There you go. okay my, makes it pretty easy my, if you're my, a square. My point, my point is that you are learning brand new things that people might not think you'd still be learning and people might think you can only go into the saying and learn and expand if you're 27 and you're like completely pushing the frontiers of your knowledge at age 49 which is is fabulous. We're talking to Brian Burke by the way. Brian is a football writer for ESPN. He has really been jumping on this next generation stats thing. ESPN buys the data has an arrangement with the NFL, one of the only organizations that does outside of the NFL and Brian's been on the front lines pushing Things forward. I'm going to ask one question. Can you give us the bigger picture here on why why we care about route recognition? This seems really technical and kind of obscure for being the focus of our conversation so far. So, where are we going? Why do we care about this? Uh,
5: good question. So, um, for ESPN, what we want to do is we want to serve sports fans anywhere, anytime. That's our that's our mantra. And so we uh, we want to make uh, Football fans feel entertained and informed, and this is part of the the informed. And so, let's say uh, Michael Thomas was on Monday Night Football uh, this this past week, and he um, uh, we one of the first things we learned is uh, when we combined this with the coverage data that we have now, um, when it's man to man. He gets all his yards off of slant routes. When I say all, I mean well, disproportionate, large, disproportionate okay. amount. Okay. And when it's zone, he gets disproportionate amount of his yards on out routes. Mm-hmm. And so, during a game, we can uh, we can enable our analysts and our on-air talent to we can arm them with information like that to, mm-hmm. to better inform the the viewer. Mm-hmm. That's just one example. Mm-hmm. Um, we can we can uh, dive deeper. I mean, there's so much low hanging fruit now. Um, I, I really don't even know where to begin.
3: So, so Brian, uh, our students. Uh, this is Adi Weiner, by the way. Um, our students were involved in the Data Bowl competition, where they essentially did some of the things that you're talking about here. They identified routes automatically um, yeah. using various different machine learning techniques, and it was a, a pro, you know an ongoing project. But their point was to kind of say if they had run this route in this situation, they would have expected more points than the one that they actually ran. And so essentially they were trying to do a couple things, which is sort of expected points uh, above, um, you know, more, what their points were above expected by figuring out a model that would tell you expected points and also to kind of figure out a better strategy to sort of, in other words, here's how you should be calling plays because these plays are are more effective than others. Is that what you're about here or is it more from the, from the, from the listener?
5: Um, Yes, but that was my ult When I, when we were the dawn of the tracking data, when there were, it was just being discussed, tracking data for football, it's coming in a couple of years. That's you know sort of the the um, which play which plays are the killer plays? Like you say, hey, yep. it's cover two. What's the killer play against cover two? What's the killer play against cover three? Mm. And um, so that's kind of what I always wanted to do. That's a little sort of maybe teams and and other you know, analysis shops like uh, Pro f- Football Focus or telemetry, places like that. And and me, I'm very interested in that as well. I- I'll dig into that. Um, but for, for the ESPN thing, it, it's more of a, a matter of uh, kind of informing fans. Um, one of the things I want to mention, though, is that, like, routes don't exist in isolation. There, there's always route combinations or a concept. Um, there, there's... So uh, they're, like you know a, a let's say a, a you know curl flat combination is very, very different thing than than let's say a you know a flat route in isolation you're talking
2: about um, what guys on kind of the same side of the field are running next to each other or what two guys yeah. on one side three guys on one side and then the guy on the other side of the field what collection or, or of patterns or yeah, crossing yeah. routes exactly so yeah, what the collection of
5: concept. yep okay yeah yeah so, so that's so you, you have to i think you have to we have to go to that level in order to accomplish like, like that optimization right. you know, killer you know play type thing. I want to give a lot of credit to your students uh, who I drove up to meet and talk with uh, so i I um, stopped at uh, um, in Philadelphia and, and talked with uh, your students who participated in the big data Bowl. and uh, they they helped point me in the right direction on this project so Neat. you know they the, um, the, yeah,
2: brilliant guys. Well, it's a lot. Of, I mean, Michael Lopez and the NFL get credit for that big bowl competition and brought, bringing in, you know. The reason you do these competitions because you know you throw a cast a cast wide enough net, people are going to come up with things you wouldn't come up with on your own. And here we have a group of students who jump in. at the, Like this time last year, well into the competition, yep. they jumped in and came up with something. It's It's great to hear that you thought that was valuable. Let's take this uh, this interaction thing a little bit farther. and This holistic, we tend to as analysts get a little bit focused on the one thing that we can observe precisely and over infer, you know, something from that one thing like a route that somebody runs. And now you're saying, "Hey, we got to consider the coverage, which we've already kind of you've already kind of cracked." But actually, we need to consider the route combinations and the coverage. Now we're getting pretty complicated. Where are we on understanding those kinds of things? I want to give you a, I want to give you a specific point of departure. And I want the whole team's Input on this one, I'm really curious. Have you seen that that PFF has come up with a war, like PFF War for Football, which they they've just come out with, and they said that in their analysis, Russell Wilson's the most valuable player by their by their war measure. Which is, I mean, we love those guys, and and they're also an example of they've got a structure that's you know a little flawed right now, but it's less flawed than it used to be, and it's going to be even less flawed in the future. And they're doing great things. So great, let's go see if we can get War for Football because that's been. It's one of the great. It's one of the wonderful things about following baseball and analyzing baseball. We haven't had it in football. But let me give you an observation. They say based on this year, Russell Wilson's worst three point one. Next best is Dak Prescott two point two. Where is Lamar Jackson? He's, a one, he's sixth at 1.6 at one point seven. And I want to do what I always hate other people doing when I put analytics out there and say, does that face? Does that pass the eye test? Does 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 Lamar Jackson at about half of war? Half of Russell Wilson's war. The eye test. Didn't uh,
3: the Ravens have twelve Pro Bowl selections? That's correct. So, so how
2: do you how do you account for all of that? But the the, the specific proposition I'm going to suggest is that he. We, I was just having this conversation with a buddy and colleague over dinner last night. The, my claim would be Lamar Jackson's unique ability to both be one of the best running backs in the league and one of the best passers in the league stresses the defense in a way that opens up everything else. The reason they're able, Mark Ingram's able to run for he's a great running back, but he does so much better because. Lamar Jackson's stressing the defense, but you mm-hmm. only capture that by understanding all of these interactions, and my claim is there are very few running other quarterbacks in the world that you could drop down that would stress the defense in the same way, and therefore the Ravens just wouldn't do what they do without Lamar Jackson. If that's the case, his war can't be half of Russell Wilson's, but all of that rests on some holistic evaluation that we're not well-equipped to do. You have to capture all of these interactions. It's the threat that, that Lamar Jackson poses to run around the left side for 64 yards or throw either a shallow something or a deep something on the right side.
5: My, yes. No, that was my fr- I read that article um, by PFF about war, and I applaud what they're doing. And I tried to sell – what's the name of the founder? I was on the phone with him before I joined ESPN. I was Neil, to Neil Hornsby. On yes, I was trying to sell him on that concept. I was like, you give me your your grading, your individual play player level grades. I will give you an, an NFL wins above replacement. And he he had just sold the company to Collinsworth, Chris mm-hmm. Collinsworth, and he was in the car. They were driving uh, on a, like a sales trip to go pitch their offerings to a team. And he was in the car with Collinsworth. Collinsworth was driving. You know, <laughs> I was making my pitch to them. They're <laughs> yeah. like, nah. You like, wrote me back uh, on email a little while later. They're like, nah, we don't we don't like that idea. No. Um, but well, they
2: went. Well, was, let's say let's be real clear. They went out and got Eric Eager, who's great, and I'm sure Eric's behind this thing. But it's just yeah. – it's not, it's not a criticism of Eric. It's just that we don't have the tools right now to evaluate the contribution of all 22 players simultaneously, especially when you have unique players like Lamar Jackson. Well, it's the claim. It,
3: it, is, yeah. it is a criticism in the sense that you would argue that creating something like war is a little premature. Well, No, I, I think you have to... Or they're creating a framework
0: yeah, that we will improve ex- upon by including more and more interactions. I mean, you yeah, have to start you somewhere. You have to start
3: somewhere.
2: And you can't... I, yeah. if, if you waited until it was perfect, it would probably never come out. I mean, Brian... Or somebody
0: else would create an imperfect one that we'd build on.
2: That's right. Brian Burke, who we're talking to on the phone, presented at uh, the pre-conference, MIT's pre-conference last year, and he puts out this thing about evaluating... I forget even now what it was, Brian. I are mean, like, this is all wrong. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying this is the first step in a direction that's important to go.
5: Yeah, remember those maps, like, from... You know, before they had you know longitude. You know these these uh, longitude, <laughs> right? You know, like you know, uh, you know, whatever, you know. Uh, dragons be here yeah. and, oh, you know, like, <laughs> you know, maps just look like, goofy and they're just wrong and you know Baja California is like its own continent and, <laughs> yeah like that's really what we're doing I think
3: I think that's you know, really it's really well put. that's a great analogy yeah but those maps were not so they were actually they were so wrong that they were they were they were bad <laughs> yeah, right.
2: but they, but you never would have got the next map the, the, the next generation map was would better. you rather
3: use the, uh, that or no map <laughs> well you know one of the things that I, I always argue with my when I Explain sampling to my students. Is people love to generate samples that are terribly biased, and my argument is that a a biased sample is is worse than no sample. And that's essentially. I mean, I'm not saying this is equivalent. Okay,
2: no, I'm I'm going to say this is noisy. Noise is okay. Yeah, it's unbiased. It's variance. That's right. So biased. If we know if we know something systematically biased, then we should correct it. But at the point at this moment, we just know that it's noisy. I think it would be the claim, and right. and noise and noisy, we're happy to deal with because it's.
0: And and also, I mean, like again, this the context for this discussion. I'm sure there's plenty wrong with this war incarnation, this first iteration of war, anyway. But we're discussing in the context of one of the most idiosyncratic players I think we've seen in the last decade <laughs> no, no, as yeah well. Right? It's so it doesn't account for Lamar Jackson. I mean, who can? I'm
2: so unfair. I entirely 100% I'm gonna, I'm gonna, agree.
3: I don't want to hijack the sport, but in in baseball, they invented the war, and they and they have basically. Commonality in the system, and I think it's it's fundamentally broken in the way they handle position adjustments. Yet no one's talking about it or changing it, and they're they're getting fixated on it every year slightly more. And I I think it's it's headed Okay, so it, it, it,
2: it's one of the things I think you're saying is that once a flawed metric becomes institutionalized, it can be do more harm than good. And so it, I think the the caution there is let's not institutionalize anything too quickly,
0: oh, and also kind of. An, uh, Analogous that is is once you can measure something with numbers like oh his war is three point one two five five people start attaching a, a a precision to it that is not well, necessarily correct. So right. so Brian this is Eric Brother, and let me build on Shane's question. Um,
4: while everybody might want to know who's the top quarterback, who's the second one, who's the third, what level of granularity would you feel comfortable with today? Is it would you feel comfortable saying there's five tiers? and here's and who's in each tier there's four tiers two tiers how would how comfortable do you feel with the kind of the binning that ha, that should happen today based on what we know
5: hmm. i well yeah the danger with tiers i mean that's a good approach uh but there's there's pluses and minuses you know there's a drawback to everything so that sort of discreetness there's there's a fuzziness you know on the on the bubble uh you know the the bottom guy on the first tier and yep. the top guy in the second tier uh so it's always a little bit arbitrary Um, I don't know, you know, I I don't know how to answer that, to be honest. I I think to address the the prior question, the way I think of a a model, any model, let's say like a war model or or any, you know, a linear regression is basically a set of assumptions, just a a collection of assumptions that is, you know, tuned to to fit the data. And so let's say for regression, you know, the assumption is normality and linear additivity. Um, and so any, no matter how complex the model, there's a set of assumptions, uh, that define it. And the, the, uh, like war model, uh, for baseball or any other sport, one of the assumptions is linear additivity, right? And that's what Cade was talking about. Well, this, this can't really work because there's so many interactions. Um, and so what I advocate is, uh, no matter what method you use, um, Make your assumptions explicit. State your assumptions Mm -hmm. out loud, Mm -hmm. and that way. So, like in operations research, the way we kind of approach problems is: okay, let's make this a really, really easy problem by making a set of assumptions, like yeah, linear additivity and normality, and and let's uh, and then let's go one by one and relax that assumption. That's what academics say for people who aren't academics. (laughs) Relax the each assumption, and it makes the problem a little bit harder and a little bit harder each time. Right, right. But you're getting closer and closer to ground truth. Uh, so that's that's all I would say. Is like models like that. I totally agree. It's it's a step forward. Um, but make your assumptions explicit, and then uh, we we that way we won't kind of crash on the rocks um, right. like the the ancient <laughs> mariners did with this old map.
2: <laughs> Listen, Brian. Thank you as always for making the time to be with us. We love the work you're doing. We love following it. We wish you the best as you go ahead and continue pushing forward the frontier of football analytics. Brian Burke.
5: Thanks, guys.
2: Absolutely. You can follow Brian's work. He writes for ESPN. He's one of the folks there at the analytics group who does such good things and really advancing the conversation in, in the NFL and college football. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Dion Simpkins, sound engineer and associate producer, bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour as he does every week. Cade Massey hosting here with Shane Jensen. Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, faculty all here at the Wharton School. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, have been for the last five and a half years, rounding out the decade with you today. Last show of the year. We'll have some kind of replay, I'm sure, next Wednesday, but we will not be here live. We'll be back two weeks, two weeks from now. Jan 8, I believe.
4: This is going to happen once every seven years because, you know, it rotates which day Christmas and New Year's is. It turns out they're both Wednesday. Well, Uh they're always the same day of the week, but they're both this year on Wednesday. But seven more years, our fans won't have to miss us on those (laughs) days.
2: Well, it well hold on. It gets, it's going to get confusing, Eric, because there's a leap year in there, and yeah. it changes things Uh-oh. around. Exactly. That's true. Yeah. Um, by the way, I'm, we're gone for three weeks. What am I thinking? Janet is three weeks from now. You guys can jump in or Don't miss your last chance of the teens to give us a shout one eight four four Wharton 7866 or hit us up on Twitter at W is our handle. There, we will we'll be tweeting throughout the holiday break. Don't worry, we'll keep you apprised of the world of sports analytics we uh, have a few things to cover we want to talk about what's going on more broadly in the NFL we have some matchups here at the end of the half hour but big picture NFL anything jumping out at you guys right now
4: well I, I think the big story of the NFL right now is the massive uncertainty in the NFC we have three teams that are all 11 and 3 which is, you know, Seattle, San Francisco, and Green Bay. Yeah. Uh, it turns out two of them are in the same division. So one of those two teams is gonna be a one seed and one of them's gonna be or two or three seed and one's gonna be a five seed. And so I mean one of them's gonna be a wild
0: card team. Yeah. There's gonna be
4: an eleven and three now, team. And Seattle so or it, San Francisco, it's one a weird of them.
0: Co- it's a little bit of a weird kind of uncertainty because our wild card we're pretty much locked into what teams are going to the playoffs, other than in the NFC East. One that's of those correct. two teams is not going to be in the playoffs. But the wild cards are essentially decided. We know yeah, where they're the Vikings, coming from. The
4: Vikings could still lose it to the Rams if the Vikings lost their last two and the Rams won their last two. But essentially yeah, the six teams are decided in that's, the NFC. That's
0: right. And, and But but the ordering, which is, of course, paramount as far as the playoff picture is concerned, is really up in the air.
2: And one of the fun things is that these teams are playing each other. So yeah, San Francisco, right. Seattle, they close next week, I believe, and Dallas, Philadelphia. Dallas is up here in Philadelphia this weekend, well, also be good fun. this
4: Monday night, very Titanic battle Packers yeah. at Vikings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean that's huge good game. Fun.
2: And I've got I've got a uh, Wisconsin relatives. They'll be in for the holidays. So I've got Monday night Christmassy Packers game. I'm psyched about that one already. On the AFC side, what suspense do we have? I guess we have. I don't know. Is, well, is the New big... England going to hold on to that number two spot. Well, that's, yeah, that's, no. That's... I
0: mean the the, the buy. Yeah, I mean Kansas City. uh, Will challenge New England for the bye. Will Will Kansas City be able to pass New England for the bye? So that New England Buffalo game this weekend will kind of determine that. It determine that.
2: Did y'all see that when Buffalo came home from that Pittsburgh game last week, having clinched the playoffs, that they were met? You know, it's like freezing middle of the night. They're Buffalo Bills fans. Eric Eric knows Bills fans well. Yeah, and they, they met him at the airport. Josh Allen shot a selfie and the and the Albright Knox Museum, which is a super high end museum in Buffalo posted this picture, framed it, posted it in their museum, but that's how fired up Buffalo yeah. is right now to be back in the well, playoffs.
4: Well, what I said to Shane, if you, talk about, if you want to talk about the A. C. we've talked about it for 10 seconds off the air, we shouldn't have done it. If Bill, if the Patriots win the Super Bowl this year, this has to be the greatest job they've done because not only are the Patriots 2-3 and three against winning teams this year, they're 9-0 and oh against teams with losing records, the three teams they've lost to are the Chiefs, the Texans, and the Ravens, those are the other three division winners in the That's AFC. Good. So if they're able somehow to get to the Super Bowl, first of all, we agree they won't be the one seed. The Ravens no. almost certainly are going to be the one seed. So they're going to, they would have to go on the road in the AFC yeah. championship game. There's no doubt in my mind this would have to be. I mean, they will have lost to all the other teams that they would
0: potentially play. No, yeah, and it's it, it would be quite the coaching effort, and they they've done it before, so I'm not going to say they're not going to do it again. But I, this this new New England team is certainly the weakest that I think I've watched, at least on the offensive side, the weakest I've watched in in a long time. So I do not, I think we're going to see a changing of the guard here. We're already right, highly. We're already right, highly likely to that that the uh, other Super Bowl participant from last year is not even going to make the playoffs, right? Correct. So, um, so no, I think I think we'll kind. This is kind of we're seeing a transition of the new blood, and I mean, big picture for the next like decade or so in the NFL, it's going to be really. I mean, as much as I would love Tom Brady to keep going, I think it's going to be fun to watch. You know, Lamar Jackson against Deshaun Watson well, let against let Patrick question. Mahomes. Let me, in let me the ask a question. Let to
4: Cade about Massey Peabody. Uh, someone I forget one of our guests last year, last week on the air with Audi and I said that they thought that Baltimore was the highest rated team that's ever maybe ever in Massey Peabody. buddy the reason it came to my mind is the Ravens have an unbelievable record this year they are 8 and 1 against teams with winning records yeah 8 and 1 so is it true is is Baltimore the highest ever-rated team, like 12 or 12.5 12 in Massey Peabody so that we've I, ever seen? I hadn't
2: thought about it. I'm much more calibrated for the top end in college football. So when Ohio State starts sneaking up into that plus 36 this year, it's like, oh, well, I know that's getting bumping up close to the top. I wasn't even calibrated for NFL. I heard it was Salfino that said this Yeah, last like, week.
4: Michael Salfino so, said
2: it. So we went and looked. I asked Rufus to go digging around because he's got the archive and it turns out that our highest-rated team ever—well, our ever only goes back to 2005. All right, so since that's 2005,
0: that's a
2: wise. The highest-rated team we've observed since 2005 is the 2007
0: Pats who were plus... Yeah, well, that would make sense. That, would were, make that sense. That was the helmet
2: catch team, right? Yeah. So they yeah. go into the Super Bowl they, yeah, undefeated. They,
0: they, they, yeah, they were undefeated going into the Super Bowl. Eli they Manning, looked unbelievable. And
2: the brilliant Eli Manning yeah, in the well, Super Bowl. Yeah,
0: uh, well, we don't have to get 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 into that so we much. We can do one.
2: more on it if you want to. No, that's a good more. Okay, uh, suppose, okay, go on, suppose. Suppose. go on about... Uh, so How good were they? Plus 14, plus more 14, than, 14, they were above So we have the Ravens now at plus 11.9, I think. they snuck up. They keep on sneaking. They get up into the 11s, and then they keep on rising every week. And so... That is the second highest team we've observed in the last fifteen years, yeah. and so Salfino was very close to right and super impressive. And it'll be real and they've opened a gap. I mean, the, the 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 Saints jumped about a point this week, so they've got about a three point gap on the Saints if those teams ended up in the Super Bowl. But it's a nice little gap they've, they've jumped. But I, I I share Shane's characterization that it feels like a changing of the guard with Brady being so late. Now we yeah. we could be, you know, ahead of it, but it feels so you that way.
3: Ha- You have them about at a seventy percent chance of making the Super Bowl.
2: Sixty. So sixty. Yeah, there's sixty. Big favorites out of the AFC with the Pats still, you know, twenty one percent, the ra- the Chiefs down there around eleven. On the NFC, we have the big favorites being the Saints, of course, at again about forty. So forty sa- forty Saints and forty Ravens. The other big one out there, the split, this fasting split, as you guys talked about, the NFC West. Seattle and San Francisco, right under 20%. So Seattle with a slight favorite. Of course, whoever wins that division is going to have such an advantage over the team that slips into the wild. So heart.
4: when you do, you know, I always like to do envelope math. So if the Ravens are a 60% chance to make the Super Bowl, let's assume that there's some chance that, let's assume they're the one seed, although they could be the one or the two. It basically means Massey Peabody has them at, eighty percent roughly to win each of their two games mm-hmm. that's that seems well, high. that seems high a little bit like more so the second game but yeah. like I believe if they play you know I don't know who they play the not the Texans that's who's the wild card oh they might play the Texans yeah they play the they play the th- fourth that seed. does
3: seem right given the randomness in football just that just seems a little bit high that's mm-hmm. what was my question well, yeah
2: so I mean I mean they I,
3: were about 85 percent over the Jets last week whenever that was <laughs> But they would I'm saying they would have to be an yeah. 80% over yeah, well, the Texans. and they're playing a good give, team. Give me right. an
2: example of who they would play in that well, divisional Well, right now round, if, if everything happened round, right now, they play the Texans. Texans
0: are likely. Texans okay. or a wild card so team. So let's
2: just walk through the line. If we see that they're plus 12 essentially, Houston, we have down there at plus 3. And that's on a neutral field. So nine points on a neutral.
4: Then add two and a half, three, yeah, so 12 okay, so points. All right, that gets you there. Yeah. That gets you, yeah. that's, that's a 90% get, game That's 90% yeah. game. Yeah. And, and, and then the, the, the other game is about a 60%, 65% yeah, game. something like that. All that.
2: right. So, um, that's where it comes from. I mean, you guys know it's just math and a simulation. And I so don't think
3: it, an, a, 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 what is an 11-point advantage? I don't think that's 90%. 12, 12 points? Well, you, yeah. Run, your I'd, the one who I'd say that's about a standard deviation, so I'd say it's closer to, well, one standard deviation, which is about 12 and a half points, would be about 85. Okay, okay. Eighty-five,
4: 90, 90 we'll take it. 85
3: quite. times 0. .7 <laughs> gets you to yep. 60% roughly, yeah. though, so well, that
2: could be. Speaking of 12-and-a-half-point lines, I think that's about where the LSU-Oklahoma is. 13-and-a-half, 13-and-a-half. Okay, so and a half. Um, so the, we're, we will miss. It's, I believe, Saturday the 28th. We've got both games. The final is the 13th or something, so we'll be back on the Wednesday before the final. We'll know at that point who's in there. But we have this setup, which we knew we were going to have. We have three elite teams and the Sooners. So whoever got. Whoever, <laughs> so where do you
3: have the Sooners in Mississippi Peabody?
2: Well, I can dig so that up. So what's the differential
3: between the? You're saying the Vegas line is 12 And what do you have for could, LSU could, Oklahoma? Because this might be an opportunity.
2: No, no, it's about approximately the same, and we anticipated oh, you were, you, it coming in. I mean, okay. they, we, they're one of the best teams in the country, but that that top three has just separated themselves so much yeah. that that getting that and, you know LSU remember jumped Ohio State the last weekend of the year for that number one spot. They were so much more convincing in their title game than, than the Buckeyes were. That was critical. We knew it going in, and it was me, critical because freaking Buckeyes are underdogs against Clemson. Let me Did ask you, you see this real quickly? Yeah. Two and a half point line. Ohio State, you know, a month ago, people were saying this is the best team in the country. Clemson has played literally nobody. They literally, I mean, they, what's their average margin of victory been? They've something obliterated like 25 them. 25 no. points or something. Yet, so you'd think, what can we really know about Clemson? The market says, well, we know that they're two and a half points better than Ohio State. It's well, remarkable.
3: They were, I mean, they were the national champions oh, last that year. Doesn't that doesn't matter. Does that matter. not matter? I mean, no, how much no. of the team comes back? I mean, what's the? does it done. really ma- not matter?
4: The quarterback is back. Yes. Mm-hmm. The guy that you know, absolutely played good. Alabama last yeah. year.
2: I don't think having won the national championship matters. The institution matters. Yes. There's so much momentum in institutionally with the coaches and the facilities and the culture. That matters. But whether or not they won the national championship or not, I don't think. I don't think that would show up in the model.
4: Yeah, I was going to ask you an uncertainty question. So I think we all agree LSU is better. On paper right now, LSU is better than Oklahoma. I don't think there's any doubt. But how certain are we? Like, how much variance is there in that line?
3: Like, how, if we look... If, if this What a question. No one ever asks the questions on the variance in the line. No, 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 but that's what I'm asking. Yeah, like, if no. I told
4: you right now... Let me give an example. It gets back to Adi. Is there a, you know Is there a money-making opportunity? If I told you right now LSU was only favored by eight and a half in the game. You'd bet it, right? Eight
3: and a half to... Uh, was, versus 13 uh, and a half If
2: I were a betting man, If sure.
3: you were a betting man, you might bet if it. If 13 and a half is what they're giving and it's eight and a half. That's that's easily a bettable situation. No, so what I'm saying is I'm
4: just trying to get everyone's perception. Like, if I told you it was 11 or 10 instead, you would say, well, that's a difference, but it's not that big. So I'm saying, how big a difference could these teams be if I told you LSU is a 17-point You're pick. asking
2: about the uncertainty. Correct. How, so I think that people have become very convinced about LSU, partly because they've beaten so Many good teams this year, so they've looked good. They've looked consistently good, and they've done it against very good competition. So I think, in terms of, if you, it's a, it's a great question. How well do we understand a team? I think LSU would be pretty far on the spectrum of, of pretty well understood. As you know, it's only so much we can understand, but as as those things go, I think LSU is pretty well understood. OU is a bigger question and partly because they've turned the ball over so much when they're not turning the ball over they're scary they're still scary on offense Jalen Hurts is not as good as the guys that came before him but it's still Lincoln Riley it's still a talented team Jalen Hurts when he's on is great if he doesn't turn the ball over they can stay with him for a while and there's uncertainty about their defense Alex Grinch is a first year defensive coordinator he was probably the, the hottest defensive hire last year They are a lot better than they used to be. But, you know, you always have more uncertainty the first year under a a coach. And I think OU is a bigger question mark.
4: I think this is also the beauty, as you were just describing, Kate, of the OSU-Clemson game. We're very uncertain, about not Clemson. very about Clemson. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Right. That's, that's what right. makes that game so yeah. intriguing. Uh, if Clemson right. were to route Ohio State, I think we'd be surprised, but we wouldn't route. Let's say it's a fourteen-point win for Clemson. We wouldn't be totally shocked. Maybe yeah. Clemson is the same Clemson that routed Alabama. It's possible. It's I'm possible. just a base rate guy on this, and go, I just see go. years
3: of Clemson just being really great and doing everything that they were supposed to do this year exactly as they've okay, done it. Well, and I'm just
2: wondering why you're so well. Here's your source of uncertainty. Well. Well, They haven't played anybody, and so I, we know we've we've established. But the by people now, they've played, they've crushed. I know this is exactly. Adi, you're, <laughs> exa- you're exactly right. That's and what we've, models are for. We've established empirically that you can infer a great deal from a weak schedule. It's kind of it's shocking to me how much you can infer. You can infer so much that they are favorites against Ohio State. Here's the uncertainty on Ohio State. Ohio State. This is a first year head coach, and they have they have really seemingly performed better. You know, Urban Meyer, as much as he did in that program, he always lost some un, un, unfathomable game. And they've kind of underperformed. They had one national championship, so good on them. But other than that, they've underperformed. Under the new head coach, they seem to be at a different level, but it's one year. So there's. I, I love Eric's idea here. It's like, okay, we have lines, but how much confidence do we have so in lines? So what is lines? the
3: line in Ohio State? Two and, to, Clemson's two, Clemson's favor, two and a half. So Clemson's favored. Clemson's favored. B- yes. By the I, way, I'm, I would have expected that. The
2: average scoring margin? I mean, I, here's a question. What was the average scoring margin in what many people consider to be the greatest college football game, of course, of the 2000s anyway? USC Texas. Those were one and two all season long. They were, nec- they wasn't,
4: were the Final score was 38 35 in the game, right? But the
2: average scoring margin for the season, because Ohio State Clemson, get this, this is a semifinal game. Ohio State's average scoring margin is 36.2 this year. Clemson's, the the difference. And Clemson's is 35.2. It's absurd. Have we ever had two teams play each other that have such high scoring margins since, like, I don't know, Oklahoma and Nebraska in the 70s when they were rolling through the
3: Big Eight? It's about as good as you can get. It's about I mean, as good right, as you can get. And that's yeah. a semifinal. They take turns and, <laughs> and that's a semifinal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's really something yeah. else.
2: All right. Uh, b- before we go into Moneyball matchups, Maddie asked us hey, it's the end of a decade. Anything interesting retrospectively? Where do, if you look back in 2010, 2011, where we are now compared to then, what's most, what most stands out to you about the world of sports analytics?
4: I'll just start. To me, it's the number of sports that are now using it. And so, you know, we were, had baseball analytics was obviously alive was and it. well in the early 2000s. Yeah. But now we've had – think about the people we've had on the show. We've had horse. We've had tennis. We've had golf. We've had soccer. We've had, you know, all the different sports now, race car analytics. And so, to me, it's just um, there is no sport that's immune from analytics. That's me, what caught my eye. Need some
0: more specific, the video tracking. Video yeah. tracking stuff that's happened, I guess that's probably in the second half of this uh, previous decade. But the fact that basically that's kind of the way almost every sport is now converging is to do everything through video tracking So for and, me, and, and machine learning for vision. So for
3: me, it's just the unbelievable transformation and the acceptance of sports analytics as a field, as a subject, as something that everybody cares about. A fan five years ago had been, what, huh? why do I need to understand this? Is this relevant to me? In what way? Now it's unquestionable to anyone. It is just like, of course. And let me just just
4: build on that. And the transference of knowledge from sports as a legitimate science area To then, that's this. We can use these methods in business and in other fields. Mm -hmm. And that's the part, by the way, it was great when Brian Burke mentioned when he was talking about his Navy knowledge and how in G forces and how he transferred that to the NFL. That was just remarkable. And that's what you're talking about now. People don't look for people look to sports analytics to provide them insights and methods for and everything.
2: So I, I love all of those answers. I think my I would give development. We're kind of into this third era of sports analytics where if the first stage was assessment, player assessment, identification, second stage maybe in-game strategy, third stage would be development. And what we've seen in baseball over the last couple of years where they take pitchers, they change pitchers, they, they change them late in their career, they add pitches, they customize swing planes. All this stuff that they're doing in baseball, it's going to eventually trickle over to other sports, but it's really been an advance and a new, yeah. a new frontier. Alright guys, we have got just a few minutes left. We've got some NFL games to talk about.
5: Moneyball
2: matchups. Eric Bradlow.
4: All right. Well, Adi, since you're directly to my left, why don't we start
3: with you? Why don't oh. you pick a game that caught your, uh, uh, caught your eye this week? This is easy. I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan. Come on. This is the only <laughs> game that I'm interested in this. I mean, so, as, a, as a more casual fan of football. To me, this is the game So how surprised are you that the Cowboys are a two-and-a-half-point favorite here in Philadelphia? I was a little surprised because I thought uh, the Cowboys and the Eagles are both not so good. <laughs> and, and so that the fact that the Cowboys are essentially a, a five-point favorite on a neutral field is somewhat disappointing to me as an Eagles fan. I thought the Eagles were better than that. But, you know, they aren't that good. So, well, or um, haven't been that Massey, good. Massey
2: Peabody has them number 12, and they would make them a half-a-point favorite in this game. Just raw. The Eagles
3: off. a half-a-point favorite?
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing some of the finer adjustments, but just off the power rankings, we think there's a, an edge there for the Eagles.
3: And now, that's interesting because one of the things about Massey Peabody is it tends to ignore injuries to anyone other than the quarterback and (laughs) it 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 does. (laughs) It does. And I think the Eagles problems have to do with a lot of So who are you
4: picking in the game? Of course I'm picking the Eagles. All right. I like it. Shane, any game? Well, I, I,
0: I have to do the Bills at the Patriots. I think that's going to be a really interesting game. I think the Bills have been amazingly good this season, way higher than anybody expected them to be, and I think that's exciting in and of itself. The fact that there's an important divisional game this late in the year in the AFC East is uh, already a somewhat of a signal that there's a changing of the guard. And, and That I said, you've... the Pats are going to cream them. Oh, there we go. <laughs> and assert I... their dominance <laughs> one more time. One last time. One last time.
2: I was going to pick the same game because I want want the Bills to clip those guys. I want them to to, to, to cement the the changing of the guard, and for it to happen with the Bills would be glorious. You scoop me on it. So I'll go with a similar kind of visceral emotion game for me, and that is Ravens going into Cleveland. Cleveland's had a disappointing season. I would love nothing more than to just Finalize Smoke that em. disappointment, exactly. <laughs> Let's just drive it into the ground all the way with Baltimore Clinch in the number one seed. They are 10-point favorite in that game on the road, which is glorious, and we have about the same for Massie, everybody.
4: And so it would be obviously uh, fake for me not to pick. Obviously, the most important game of the week was the Houston Texans at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Oh, clearly. <laughs> yeah, that's clearly the most important game. Uh, I, You know... It's a. I I wish I could be at the game. I've been invited to the game. Hold on, you're I actually picking that game? No, I'm really picking the Packers <laughs> at the Vikings. Good. That's a. That's obviously a very very important game. I think the Vikings, uh, which are favored by four and a half. I don't think that's surprising at all. I think the Vikings. Her cousins has been having a great season. Great season. I think the Vikings win that game. I think, you know, then we'll have to see. It could end up one of these scenarios where there's a bunch of team. There might be like a three-way tiebreaker because the Vikings would be 11-4. and four, The Packers would be 11-4. and four. You know, there's going to be a lot of tiebreakers going on. I like the Vikings, and I like the Vikings big in that
5: game.
2: Good. Massey Peabody's with you on that. We have to make it six and, 6.8. So even a little bit of an edge there with the, with, the, with the Vikings favored more than the line says. Guys, that has been another Wharton Moneyball, another two hours of sports analytics. We do that every Wednesday here. Of course, that one lasts for the year. Lasts for the decade, lasts for the year. We will be away for the next three weeks. We'll be doing doing holiday things. Some of us will be traveling far and wide. You guys will be traveling far and wide. We wish you the best with those travels, with the holidays, with the sports you'll be watching during that time. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you to Matty D. Thank you for Deion Simpkins. Thank you from Zach Drapkin. From the whole crew here, enjoy your holidays. We'll see you in three weeks. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.